All right. Thank you for joining the show. Heal Thyself. Another, another, another episode. Going to be a good one. Really some good, uh, important information you need to be getting better sleep. I'll be going over some products, uh, some supplements that will be really good for sleep. The ones that I use, telling you some of the brands all to, on top of that. And a really good conversation with Dr. Kat Meyer on sex, sexuality, our relationship with sex, pornography, um, and everything in between. It's going to be really good. Uh, so without further ado, let's get this show started. Let's go to the Knowledge Bomb. You all know how important it is when I speak of habits and rituals, right? It's a staple of consistency. And the body, we know, loves consistency. And a few weeks ago, I did a show and I shared my morning routine on the podcast and also did some visuals on social media, right? But as I mentioned, it's been life-changing, right? When you dedicate yourself and some time to yourself, it can completely shift your being. I touched a little bit on my night rituals on the last show, but I really wanted to dedicate this show in sharing them with you. The things that I do and why I do them, but also I'm going to share with you things that I don't do, but could be really helpful for you. So this is going to be a really good one. Um, you don't have to have poor sleep in order to not have a sleep hygiene ritual, right? Sleep hygiene rituals will be good for everyone because it will optimize your sleep, even if you're sleeping well, okay? So you may have heard of sleep hygiene. You heard me speak about sleep hygiene for sure. Sleep hygiene, as defined by the Sleep Foundation, is having both a bedroom environment and daily routines that promote consistent, uninterrupted sleep, right? And I like that definition because it shows that there's not only your habits right, that are there, but they need to be complemented by your environment. So let's start there with the environment. I want to start with the first part. When we think about environment, you don't have to go any further than lighting. Lighting for sleep hygiene is so, so important. It's everything when it comes to supportive sleep. In my home, when the sun goes down, my environment changes, right? I have two Himalayan salt lamps. Boom, I pop them on. My lights go on dimmer, and then they go off later in the night. Why? You may remember a few episodes ago, we had Matt Maruk on the show, and he mentioned an amazing fact that for every hour you are exposed to artificial light after sunset, your melatonin goes down by 22%. Now, we know melatonin is super important because it's not only your sleep hormone, it's also the hormone for immunity, anti-cancer, anti-inflammation in the body while you sleep. It's what makes you tired. So the melatonin is sensitive to light, light stimulus. It's easily disrupted. The eye sees the light, the electrical stimulus goes up the nerves into the brain to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, right? The SCN. And it's this center that regulates melatonin timing and release. The light, in essence, what's happening, it's signaling to that center, hey, take it easy. We don't need melatonin. It's daytime. We don't want to make this person tired. Let's keep them nice and alert. Easy with the melatonin. That's what light's telling your brain. So two things I always do when the sun goes down is turn on my Himalayan salt lamp and put on my blue blockers, right? I have the raw optics orange ones, which in my opinion are the best ones out there. But if you're unaware why blue blockers are important at night, check episode number 72 for more details. But for me, that's probably the one, number one most important intervention for sleep hygiene. So why do I turn on my Himalayan salt lamp and candles when the sun sets? It's because of Lux. Lux is a unit of illuminance, how strong that light is. Himalayan salt lamps do not have the lux to disrupt your melatonin, especially when you're on the dimmest setting. Direct sun has anywhere from 32,000 to 100,000 lux. And nighttime lux 
is anywhere from 0.0001 to 0.3 lux, depending on the moon. So an article in the New England Journal of Medicine called Shedding Light on Melatonin wanted to measure the level of intensity that disrupts melatonin in subjects four hours before bedtime. So for melatonin disruption, all that was needed was 10 to 50 lux. And for 50% suppression of melatonin, the lux was 24.6. To put it in perspective, your living room light is 50 lux. So basically what's happening is your living room light after sunset will have a significant impact on the melatonin disruption and suppression. Not only are you not getting enough melatonin, but the melatonin train when it's arriving is coming late. So get a Himalayan salt lamp, get one with a dimmer, keep as many rooms as you can with the lights off and the others dim. If you don't have a dimmer, go get a lamp, go get one with a red or amber bulb, right? Find out or look up on Google how to how to put the red tint on your phone in order to keep it in that mode so it's not disrupting your eyes. And also the F.Lux program for your computer is going to be really important and keep that in dark room mode after the sun goes down. Now, if you have blue blocking glasses, you don't have to do the red tint on the phone or the computer mode that I just mentioned because uh, it'll block all the blue light. But still, it's really important to set that ambiance of lighting for yourself. Get that lamp, get some non-toxic candles, and set that mood. All right, so now you know how I set my mood. Environment is everything. So make sure your apartment or your house is cool, not too hot. You don't want it too hot, right? You don't want your bedroom hot or your, or your bed hot. Dr. Michael Bruce, who is a sleep guru, who's on this show, said that you want your house about 65 to 72 degrees in order to be most conducive to a good night's sleep. You don't want to heat up your core body temperature, right? Especially close to sleep time, because that's going to be disruptive to your sleep. Your hypothalamus in the brain is what's dropping your body temperature and telling you that it's time to fall asleep. Our body temperature follows a rhythm, and it's its coldest around 4 to 5 a.m., and it's hottest around 4 to 6 p.m. So the hotter the body, the more alert. The cooler the body, the more sleepy. So this means don't work out late at night. This raises your core body temperature. Try to cut it out by 6 p.m. We're not meant to raise our core body temperature at night like that. We're not so meant to work out at night like that. So keep it during the day. This is what I do. So you may wonder about baths and hot showers. I say not too close to bed, right? Especially a bath. You don't want a super, super hot bath. It will raise your core body temperature, uh, but not by a lot. Dr. Michael Bruce actually mentioned that when you take a hot shower or even a hot bath, um, when you come out of it, basically what's happening is the cold air is dropping your core body temperature and inducing sleep. So for me, it's like much better uh, than a hot sauna. You don't want to do a sauna before bed because that's really raising your core body temperature higher and higher. And it's going to be more sustained than let's say a, a hot shower, right? It's a little bit more superficial, especially if you're doing an infrared sauna. So, uh, and don't get in a cold plunge, right? Theoretically, it sounds good, right? R lower your body temperature, but a cold plunge or cold shower is a little bit different. Um, because if you do it regularly, you'll know that it's like nature's coffee, right? It gets you amped up, it gets you energized. So I'd rather maybe a lukewarm shower rather than a cold shower if you want to cool it down a little bit. So me, I keep my thermostat at 69. In the summer, I'll keep a breezing fan on me. Um, they do have pads out there for your bed. One is called a chili pad. I haven't fully uh, looked into it, admittedly, but um, I worry about the EMFs. I don't know how strong they are or how poor they are. It's not a testament to chili pad, but I know a few people who like them. Other option, sleep naked or, or sleep with less clothing. The less clothing, the better. If you tend to get hot, the key is in the feet. Put your feet outside of the bed 
uh, the covers, and it's going to be cooling down faster. Also, I want you to know memory foam from a health perspective, you know how I feel about it, but also it's notorious for trapping heat, as are latex. So I had a mattress topper that was latex, and I was getting so hot because it was trapping all of that heat. And I remember there was many times that I would have disrupted sleep and be sweating and wake up uh, because of that latex. So um, think about that if you're purchasing a bed. Uh, most beds, natural beds, are some form of latex and cotton mix, but a full latex bed, keep in mind that it might get you a little bit hot. And me, I don't sleep with a heavy comforter. So find your temperature that best suits you. Take some time and intention and find out what's best. All right, what about the habit part? You got to turn off meditation, breath work, that brain stimulation part. That's the issue, right? So that's going to really disrupt your sleep. Here's a nightly habit that can be really helpful. Is that meditation? Is relaxing your brain? Because when I say relaxing the brain, it's, it's not sit down and watch TV and turn off or even listen to music, right? If you are listening to music, I would always recommend something more like classical, soft jazz, Tibetan meditation, yoga music, something softer towards the end of the night. Um, but I would actually prefer more silence about an hour before bed. This is something that I do. Everything goes off. My phone goes on airplane mode. The music is off and I have that hour of complete silence. That complete silence is really important for me to integrate my day, integrate my thoughts and put myself in a place where I clear everything out and I'm ready for bed. But as an aside, make sure that if you are turning on your phone in airplane mode, uh, keeping it away from you, make sure you don't sleep. You keep your phone in airplane mode, put it away from you. You can turn off your Wi-Fi, reduce those EMFs because they can disrupt your sleep too. Uh, that's just an aside. Just keep that in mind about your phone. But back at it, brain stimulus before bed is an issue. So at least an hour, keep it silent. No phone, no TV. I actually turn off music, as I said. Light reading can be okay, but nothing heavy or existential, okay? Uh, keep your blue blockers on if you have them. If you don't, again, get that red or amber light by your bedside lamp, and you can do some reading. But again, be in silence. Uh, you know, it's funny. I had my friend sleep over uh, this week, and she knew come 10 p.m., quiet, nothing. So we, there was no conversation the last hour because that's quiet time. That's when we integrate our day and, and let go and get ready for tomorrow. But if you want to amp it up, do some meditation or deep breathing, right? A 2015 randomized controlled trial in the Journal of the American Medical Association split up two groups, one a mindful meditation group and the other a sleep hygiene group without mindful meditation. And they saw that the mindful meditation group had greater improvements in sleep quality and also less disturbance and also secondary measures of insomnia, depression and fatigue improved. So both meditation and deep breathing will activate that parasympathetic nervous system. That's why it's important. This is really an important part of sleep hygiene. It's probably the most important aside from the light and the environment, but really the meditation is going to be so important because it's going to induce and help with sleep. It's going to relax your nervous system into rest and digest instead of the fight and flight that you were on all day at work when you had that boss yelling at you, right? Um, but it will also help produce theta waves. Theta waves are really important because they're the same brain waves that occur when you're about to drift to sleep. So it'll put you in a relaxing mind state. You let go uh, the night before sleep. It'll be in a good place, and then you can integrate. Before meditation, I do a quick check-in. I ask myself a few things, and this is something that works for me. You can bring it into your practice if you want. Did I show up as a man that I am intentionally looking to create? Did my day present me with the opportunities to prove that to myself? 
And then I shake off that day. I shake off what didn't serve me. And I sit in silence in bed, do some meditation, and I'm off to bed. And you know what? My sleep has been improving very much. So so the last thing is when's the best time to go to bed? To be honest, it depends on genetics. We're not the same. We all have slightly different rhythms. Um, you know, this is why the person who tries to wake up at 5 a.m. and it's not genetically made to wake up at 5 a.m. Uh, to work out is going to be miserable. Whereas that person at 5 a.m. who can naturally wake up really can't stay up past 10 or 11. So it depends on chronotype. Read The Power of When by Michael Bruce, a really good book. So you can figure out what your chronotype is. I'd say the best time for folks is between 9 and 12, depending on that chronotype. Again, it depends on, it depends on how our genes are made up. Uh, but I know myself, even as a chronotype of a night owl, and if I get to bed before 11, my brain and my body are best the next day. The quality and quantity of sleep is really more fruitful if I'm in bed before 12. So you got to start playing around with what works best for you um, and make sure that you're not stimulating that brain late at night. And quick things to avoid, of course, don't eat too late. Eating too late will not only activate your digestion, uh, raise your cortisol, uh, will tell, will give your brain the the wrong signal that it's time to eat. You're not following the very particular rhythm at night, right? Our digestion slows down at night, right? All of those impulses go slow down at night. So we have to work with nature. Stay away from alcohol and caffeine for sure. I mean, I had the aura ring. I had a glass of, I don't remember, wine or a cocktail last year. And I saw how it affected my sleep. It was, it was just, it was so important to learn how, how that measured out on my graph. And yeah, so alcohol will absolutely affect your sleep, even that one glass of wine at night. But, um, but yeah, just those are, those are really easy things that we can just make interventions with. So just keep away from eating late at night, no caffeine, no alcohol. So there, there you go. Sleep hygiene, important points that you can do every single day to really get yourself in a really good place for sleep. I didn't mention supplements, but I'm going to talk about them in the product review. All right, product review time. Really quick, I want to go over some supplements that I personally use for sleep. Um, I spoke about Serifos, S-E-R-I-P-H-O-S, Serifos by Interplexus. It's one of my favorite sleep supplements. Um, basically, I take it uh, right before dinner, and then I take it an hour before bed. And the Serifos is really helpful, especially for folks who are in a stressful state and their brain and their adrenal glands are not communicating well. So they're very much so overwhelmed. Uh, so the Serifos is my savior when it comes to times where I have a lot on my plate. Um, so something to think about. Talk to your doctor about this. Again, this is not medical advice. Magnesium glycinate or glycine, uh, that's magnesium with the amino acid glycine, and it's helpful because it relaxes the body, relaxes the brain. For me, I need to, I need to personally take a lot, but, uh, and what, what a lot is is dependent on me, ask your doctor, but magnesium glycinate is really, uh, has a wide range of safety, but really powerful, powerful when it comes to helping you sleep. So magnesium glycinate, another thing to talk about. Um, so magnesium, the one I get was, is the one from Pure Encapsulations. It come with a big bottle. Um, chamomile or passionflower tea, both of them are really helpful for me. Um, I know that Mountain Rose uh, has really nice herbal, loose leaf herbal uh, teas, but you can also get them from, let's say, yogi or traditional medicinals, organic ones. Lavender oil, really nice at putting on your wrist. It's really beautiful. Um, I use the one by doTERRA, but I also have one from Young Living. Uh, just the scent is starting to activate the centers in the brain that are more relaxing, that are more calming. 
Melatonin I don't use because I don't react well to it. And there's actually a small population of us who don't react well to melatonin and it will give vivid dreams and also keep you pretty groggy the next day. I'm very sensitive to melatonin. I don't use it, but definitely talk to your doctor. Um, most dosages are really high in melatonin. It, you can use anywhere from 0.3 to 0.5 to 1. I think 3 may even be a little too high for folks. Um, so there are different melatonins out there. There's one by Thorne that I uh, that I like. And then there's one by, I believe Pure Encapsulations has the liquid one. Um, but I what has, what has helped uh, instead of melatonin, more upstream in the melatonin pathway is the tryptophan. Tryptophan was really helpful. The tryptophan is the amino acid that's in Turkey. That's why you feel, aside from really pigging out on Thanksgiving, why a lot of folks feel really tired is that tryptophan. Um, other foods have more tryptophan than turkey, but that's just, that's, I'm digressing. But uh, tryptophan in itself has been really helpful as a supplement for sleep. I have used the one by Thorn Source Naturals, and that's it, Thorn and Source Naturals. Those are the ones that I use. Um, but talk to your doctor about that, especially in 5-HTP. I've also used that, and it's helped me. But you got to talk to your doctors about those very much in particular and this whole thing. But yeah, that's like a really simple regimen that I find pretty safe throughout, Um and has worked for me, but these are some things that you can talk to your doctor about, and I really hope that helped. All right, there you go, my product review on my favorite supplements out there. We're about to get Dr. Katmeyer on to talk about sex, sexuality, all of the juicy stuff that we've been not talking about on the show yet, because we haven't had the guests, but we got the best guests to talk about it. So let's get her on and move to the guest segment. All right, today's special guest, Dr. Kat Meyer. We're going to go into some deep stuff. She's a sex, relationship, and trauma therapist, and she's a yoga instructor. You know how much I love yoga, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to tie it all in. Some awesome information coming at you. Hey, Doc, how are you? Hi. So good to be here. Yeah, yeah. We we sort of were going to make this happen last year. Yeah. Things fall through the cracks. Then yeah. all of a sudden we have a wave coming where we're all <laughs> stuck in our home. But finally, um, we reconnected, and I'm so glad to have you here. Um, as I was telling you before the show started, we, the part of the health and holistically is not just physical, not just emotional, not mental, but the sexual aspect, our relationship with sex, our relationship with our right. partners. And I love the way you approach everything and the way you put it, uh, as information that we can all take home and apply to ourselves. And that's so important. Um, but what got you into this realm of, of, of sexual health? Oh my God, that's such a loaded question to start with. And yeah, I really just want to acknowledge that love found a way. We found a way to come together and talk about this mm. such important information. Yeah. Um, it started out my, in this lifetime, I had had to overcome sexual trauma from an early age, which developed into childhood depression and an eating disorder for 11 years. And so I was completely disconnected with my body, like completely disconnected with my sexuality. Touch was very aversive. So I really struggled with relationships. And then when I was 18 was when I took my first yoga class. And that was the first time that I actually felt calm and safe in my body. And then I realized that there was a different way that I could feel moving forward. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to be stuck with this either numbness or high anxiety in my body. And so that started the trajectory of what else is out there. Like what what else could I do here? How could I learn to live a different way than I had been? So then I dove into yoga, started learning as much as I could, started teaching when I was 20, and then went to uh, graduate school to study marriage and family therapy 
and specialize in sex and trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you tied it all in together. Tied it all in together because lasting change doesn't happen just on the surface, just talking about it. Mm-hmm. As I'm sure you've had in so many times in your in your show, you realize that there's so many different layers and you have to... there's the energetic, there's the emotional, there's the physical, Mm -hmm. and all of those things are tied together. Mm -hmm. So where one is depleted or not undernourished, it's impacting the rest of them. Mm -hmm. Now, you said something, and and I always, uh, it comes up in my head a lot, is how disconnected we are from sex. And you said, you mentioned in the past, like not feeling in your body, Mm -hmm. sort of being averse to touch, as you mentioned. do you see that often with your clients or patients coming in and saying, hey, like, I can't even reach an orgasm. Like, like yeah. I'm so out of touch with my body. I don't know what feels good. How, how common is that? Um, it's pretty common. It's very common. And the issue with it is that we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the challenges. We talk about sex. We're saturated with sex. We're given all these images of what sex is supposed to look like, who's supposed to be having it, you know, who's not supposed, to, who's not sexy. And then we, all of that gets input into our brain as this programming that we're operating from. And so then when we aren't meeting the image of what is socially constructed idea of what sex is, then it causes us to feel like we're broken, something's wrong with us, or we're looking for an orgasm that looks a specific way. And chances are, for majority of women, they may have experienced an orgasm, but the problem is that they're comparing it to something that they see in TV or they mm-hmm. see in magazines and thinking that it, that it's this major release and bliss state in their Mm. body, but it may also just be a very micro release in the body Mm. that they aren't tying that to being an orgasm. Mm. So I would help women to first look at that and see how they're defining sex, how they're defining orgasms, looking at all the different messages that they have around it, even from their family, from their religious background, um, other sexual experiences, traumas, that sort of thing that might ha- might be contributing to that. Mm-hmm. And then even trauma is a big one. Trauma mm-hmm. is something that isn't necessarily, like we think of trauma and we think of sexual assault or yeah. we think of, you know, going to the war and PTSD and that sort of thing. But trauma can even be these instances where somebody told us something and it caused a short circuiting in our body where we're just kind of like contract to it and we're like, Ugh, you know, and, and it gets input into the brain um, in a way that causes us to move forward in our life, looking through a lens as if something is wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it almost like it paints these experiences moving forward um, through this this confirmation bias. So mm-hmm. we're specifically looking for all the evidence that would su- support that belief about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Which could have been just a small thing that someone said or an experience during sex where it just changed your perception of yourself. It doesn't have to be during sex, just whenever. Yeah. And change your perception. And that being a block throughout life. Right, right. So it's like we hit this threshold of what we can emotionally tolerate and then the nervous system kicks in and sends us into fight or flight or freeze response. And and in that state, the the pieces of whatever the experience was, the distressing experience was, get put into the brain in pieces instead of all together. So like right now, everything's functioning really a lot more smoothly. Like I'm taking in all the data from here. It's yeah. going to move smoothly. But when we experience trauma, um, it doesn't. 
So then moving forward, the brain and the body are trying to process through these things so it can return back to a normal regulated state. And, and oftentimes we just keep hitting up against, you know, the, um, uh, the challenge around that. Mm -hmm. So, so then when you're hitting this challenge and hitting that wall, why is it, is it that, that, the the trauma is too painful for the to be to be relived and the body can't integrate it or or what it, what is it that is just blocking that realization because i've heard instances where people were like oh my god like i just did like this whole session with this therapist we went into some trauma i completely forgot that i was like sexually assaulted yeah in college yeah one night when i was drunk i was like wow like how how do you forget uh, like those bits and pieces but everything come and once it broke through the whole the whole like film happened like mm. the whole scene un- unraveled mm-hmm. um but it, what do you think? Do you think that we're just protecting ourselves from reliving that? Yeah. So we all have these strategies that we develop that we call uh, survival resources that help us to be able to move through distress in any kind of anything, even intimacy. So relationships, we all develop these strategies to be able to move through the distress of those. And the and for some people, it is this ability to disassociate or disconnect from their bodies or to minimize or to... Um, busy themselves or do all kinds of things so that their brain doesn't feel the intensity of whatever that distress was. So if until we, we say, okay, let's really focus on the thing. Let's focus on the symptom. Because um, a lot of times people don't even realize that this thing had happened to them, like mm-hmm. you're saying, until they're looking at how they're showing up in the world today. Right. So looking at these present day symptoms and triggers, and then we can do, and I do EMDR therapy, EMDR with somatic and attachment therapy. EMDR is uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And we will take a present day symptom and have them feel into the body and notice what's happening in the body as we're focusing on that symptom. And then I have them rewind to an earlier time that they felt that similar sensation because the brain holds onto the, the, um, the data pieces Mm -hmm. and it will associate it with other memories that are input into the brain that are stored here that have a similar piece to it. Yeah. Yeah. So we can start one place and then we can trail it back to what we call a touchstone memory. And we're, by working on that particular touchstone memory can help us to clear out the effects of some of the other experiences moving forward. Mm. And that one yeah. touchstone memory, it doesn't have to be the like sponsoring where it began. Does It, it yeah. can be downstream a little bit? Um, or does it, is it always like the first time it happened? We try to find the very source of it as much as we can. And now some of these experiences... Our brain has done an amazing job at really tucking it away into our subconscious Mm. so that we can't get to them because it's probably going to be too much. And so we'll work on a memory that's around that, or we will work on specific um, body sensations Mm -hmm. because sometimes the body sensation will be more accessible than, say, the actual event itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So we kind of work with what the brain is presenting, what our body's presenting and go from there. I love that. So, so how, one thing that, that I had asked you before this was, are a lot of us in society, is our relationship with sex 
disturbed in many ways or skewed or just were out of touch with it? Do you find mm-hmm. that just society as a whole just does not have a good relationship with sex? And then if so, what is a good relationship with sex? What does that look like? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Um, I would say it's so, it's interesting because the conversation is happening more and more. Now we're seeing more sex therapists. We're seeing more sex coaches. We're seeing more TV shows mm-hmm. like Sex Education mm-hmm. on Netflix. You know, So the conversation is happening. And because we've been operating from the specific um, medical media model <laughs> and moral model that have input these messages around what it's supposed to be like, or you're broken if, if you have uh, herpes, or if there's, you know, there's something wrong with you if you want multiple partnered sex, or whatever it is, um, maybe you have fantasies, and then you, because the messages of there's something mentally wrong with you, or mm-hmm. you're disturbed if you're interested in this kinky thing, all of that has been suppressing our own natural, authentic expression of our sexuality. And because oftentimes we won't grow or we won't question things unless we become really uncomfortable, then we'll just keep operating in this way until we hit that thing. You know, Mm -hmm. we hit a challenge. We hit, uh, we meet somebody who has a high sex, higher sexual desire than we do. And then we hit up against, okay, we've got to do something because we're not matching at each other's level. Mm -hmm. And then we start getting curious and we start asking questions. Well, hopefully, because a lot of sometimes we just don't, we're like, okay, well, that's not a priority. You know, my priority is making a, you know, six figure Mm -hmm. (laughs) empire, Mm -hmm. um, than it is sex. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then we start asking these questions. We start getting curious and start um, wondering, okay, what is what else could there be? Or maybe we're in a relationship and we're bored with it. We're bored with doing the same position over and over again and using the vibrator to get mm-hmm. get to an orgasm. And then we never question, and we might not question, what else could there be? Is this it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that I think that's speaking about the latter part of that, the relationship part. I think that is real crossroad with a lot of relationships where people then seek out to cheat right or see other partners because they can't have that open communication Mm, with being like how can we better our relationship or strengthen our relationship yeah and i know i look i know you see it because i i've heard stories (laughs) like that from like you know married couples uh friends and family Mm -hmm. who are married and um they come to that place but how do you have that communication? Because I know I know there's people listening and viewing right now who are in a, a marriage or a partnership, and they may want to have that conversation. Like, mm-hmm. we need to spice this up. <laughs> <laughs> how do you have that yeah. conversation? How do you open the conversation without your husband or your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend go, oh, no, I can't do this? Yeah, you know? yeah. And sex, the topic of sex is one of the top five more difficult conversations to have in a couple. So just... Acknowledge that. Take like, a breath. You know, yeah, yeah, everybody, it's it's all cool. It's all okay. Um, because it's vulnerable to talk about. You know, this is a part of us. You know, it's very, very open and raw. We can't really change the things that we are aroused by. And so to speak to somebody and say, hey, this thing arouses me. This thing turns me on. is so vulnerable because it's like, oh, you're actually going to see me. Oh, mm-hmm. and a lot of us can, can, you know, maybe we've experienced time in the past where we've vulnerably expressed something that we wanted and then it's been shut down or it's been met with judgment or shame or disgust. Mm. I know I personally have had that in past partnerships and, and it doesn't make it feel comfortable to want to move forward with these things. So we want to make a 
we want to set an intention of creating safety, of building deeper connection, of exploring, of discovering ourselves as sexual beings. Mm -hmm. And then I always encourage my couples to start out with, a, with an appreciation, you know, something that they appreciate about their partner as a sexual person, mm -hmm. you know, or um, one thing that I appreciate about our sex life is mm. the way you touch me, the way you hold me, you know, the, the way you do that twisty thing with your fingers, you know, whatever it is, that way the other person feels seen and understood and feels like you're with them mm -hmm. versus I'm going to lead with this thing that I want to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then it can shut down the other person because they can feel like, oh, I'm not enough or, oh, you want to do, you know, you want to sleep with somebody else or you right. want to do, you try these things. And that even may not be true. It may even be that they're expressing a fantasy you know, something that just turns them on in their own minds. Mm -hmm. And so we want to be, we want to meet the person first, say those things. We can even say something along the lines of one thing that makes me feel desired by you. One thing that makes me feel loved by you mm. is, mm -hmm. and then following up with one thing that I'm curious about in our sex lives, or one thing that I've been interested in exploring is. And so creating the safety, meeting the other person first, and then expressing what you're interested in yeah. helps to, yeah, helps to build that. Wow. The way you say it is way more eloquent than any guy <laughs> that I know would say it. They'd be like, Hey, I'm really into this. You want to do this? Mm -hmm. But it's just so much more safe to say that because I can absolutely see how your partner will be like, well, why aren't I enough? Like why, why I thought what we, I thought I was, my sexual uh, experience was enough for this or right. my wants, but, um, People have different needs. People have different needs, and we all have different sexual scripts, given everything that we've experienced in our lives, everything I've experienced in my life, and ever, all the messages and all the interactions that I've had around sexuality are different, are going to be different than this other person. The problem with it is that we come into relationships assuming that the other person has the same sexual script as we do. And so then we start, we try to touch them or initiate or uh, try or dirty talk in the same way that works for us or has worked for us in the past. And then we hit up against, oh, that isn't what mm -hmm. theirs is. Mm -hmm. So then we can fall into the pattern of either we um, start taking on the sexual script of the other person and abandoning our own. And then we end up feeling re either resentment or we're not feeling sexually fulfilled. Mm. And, and then there causes some contention there. Or a couple can decide, oh, we're just not sexually compatible. And I actually don't believe in sexual incompatibility. I actually, I believe in more of incompatibility of open-mindedness. Mm. So if we understand that we have two sexual scripts, almost like we're speaking two different languages. I'm speaking French and you're speaking English. Of course, we're not going to get the right. We might pick up some of the body cues of what it is that they want, but not fully understand their expression and what they need. So when we can learn about what our sexuality is and then be curious about what theirs is, then we can start speaking, uh, we can start creating a sexual script together, one that meets both of us instead of abandoning our own for the sake of the other person. Mm. Um, there's a, an amazing sex expert uh, researcher called Jaya, her name's Jaya, and she did this amazing model called Erotic Blueprints. And that concept is around identifying our unique patterns of our 
sexuality. Mm. So somebody might be a kinky or somebody might be um, energetic. So they're interested in more like the subtleties. I took that test. I took that test. I know that test. Um, It was like a mix of all. Actually. Yeah, me too. Shapeshifter. That shapeshifter. That's what I got. (laughs) I literally, my friend was on the phone with me and she's like, do Mm -hmm. do this test. I was like, for real? And she asked me the question and I answered. Yeah. What what was it called? The The erotic blueprint. Erotic blueprint for everyone listening and viewing. Mm -hmm. Take this test because it's really interesting. It's like, I don't know, 30 questions maybe or maybe even more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It took a while, but it was interesting Mm -hmm. to see. I was like, oh, okay. I'm the jack of all trades. I love that. (laughs) Uh, It's amazing. What are the other blueprints? So there was the... the, So um, kinky energetic, sexual, sensual, and uh, shapeshifter, which is an equal parts of all of those or, or a blend of all of those. I yeah. love that. So by understanding what your particular needs are that you have in order to feel fulfilled, to feel aroused, then oftentimes it can be easier to then meet the needs of your other partner. Mm-hmm. But if I am, say, I'm a sensual person and I need a lot of a lot of touch, a lot of play, a lot of help getting out of my head, but my partner is somebody who is more sexual and they're like straight to the point, straight to the orgasm, you know, and, and going at it, then we're just going to keep clashing uh. until my need is met, then I can be more receptive to meeting that of the other person or vice versa. So we learn what the other, each other needs. Mm. I, I you you're making such great points because I'm starting to see a whole new vision because <laughs> something that really resonated when you when you said when you can't meet each other's sexual needs you sort of like either sh- shift into their sexual need and then you mm-hmm. grow resentful. Right. It's what I've done in my yeah, throughout my life many times. I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess we're just yeah. going to do it like this. Mm-hmm. And 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 there was that resentment there and then in my mind I convinced myself this is just incompatible. Yeah. But really powerful when you said there's there's really no incompatibility. It's it's we just never we never had that consciousness, that awareness to sit down and go, let's have this conversation yeah. about our script, sexual scripts throughout mm-hmm. life and how open are we to meeting each other mm-hmm. and what are your needs? Yeah. Shit, I'm gonna tell you my needs, here are mine, and then let's meet together. Right, right. And then there can be come to a point where we really don't wanna do what it is that they want and then we need to discuss whether the relationship is right for us. Um, I've worked with couples in which one identifies in the BDSM world and the other one doesn't. And I've even published research around this same type of couple dynamic. And there's a lot of things that we can do, like what we're talking about mm-hmm. and learning and, and re-educating the misinformation around BDSM. or uh, And still at the end, it can come to the point where it's like, okay, we just aren't, mm-hmm. I'm not open enough to meet that. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, we don't want to fault anybody for that. But it's if there was that work of, of learning about yourself and the other person, uh, the potential of our sex life is infinite. But only if we get curious about what could be there mm-hmm. and, and expand. If we learn that, if I learn that I'm a sensual, and I learn all these tips and tricks of, oh, yum, this is what meets me. And I can still expand even beyond just that blueprint. Mm. Mm-hmm. But I have to start where I'm at. Yeah. You know, and not start over here where, you know, where they or are. Where someone else is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. so this, is, this is great. But how about for us guys, right? <laughs> we're so, det- man, we're so detached. Most of us are like... <laughs> I don't know what I like. You know what I mean? I just, I, I grew up and this is what my friends did and this is what porn showed me and yeah. this is what I'm going yeah. to do. How do we get in touch aside from that test? 
right? We can all do the test. Mm -hmm. But how do we get more in touch with like what we enjoy, what we like, who we are, what what puts our guard down and opens us up? Yeah. Yes. That's such a good question. So if we think of our, and this is for men and women, right? Because that, mm-hmm. that sentence or that question, what do you want can be short circuit, short circuiting for all of us. Mm-hmm. Cause it's a loaded question. Oh it's my like, God. I know you ask that question. You uh, freeze. Yeah. You, you <laughs> ask like, where do you want to go eat? And I'm just like, uh. Uh, frozen <laughs> yeah. too, too many options. Right. So yeah. then think about that in your sexuality. And it's even more so cause we can get in our heads of like, is this going to be received? Is this what they want? Is this, you know, and we get caught in this idea, especially we've been conditioned to think about the pleasure of the other person and men, especially it's like, I please her and I get her off, and then it's a successful sex, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Or sex means penetration. Mm -hmm. So I have to be able to maintain an erection. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then if I can't, then sex fails, right? Or, or then I go down on her and and, until, until she goes, you know, comes again, again, just focus on her. And what that does is it creates more of this out of body experience because we're focused on them, just them, but we lose the connection with our own body. We lose the connection of our own arousal. And so, um, especially when it comes to men who's struggling with maintaining erections or early ejaculation, I have them take a look at and become mindful of their practices, of their own masturbation practices, and really get in tune with the stages of arousal. Mm. So what it's like for them, them connecting to the sensations as they rise up to about 50, 80%, and then allow themselves to go back down and then do that again so that they are conditioning their mind to be connected with their body and, and, uh, to be able to help with the, the, um, yeah, reconditioning of the responses. Interesting. So, and, and that would that would be more for early ejaculation, right? Like, or for that, or, or for or, or, right, or, 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 or also yeah, or, for both of them. Yeah. So, so literally, get in touch with masturbation techniques, mm-hmm. and do don't orgasm, don't ejaculate. Yeah. Don't orgasm. You can yeah. orgasm, but you don't have to ejaculate. Do people? That's tantra. That's right? tantra. That's now. Yeah, now we're going into another world. That's like level ten. We're yeah, talking about. Yeah. Let's yeah. go back to that. But right. but but keep it at like eighty percent and go down and keep it. So you have that. You build that penis brain connection. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 We call it mapping. Yeah. Mapping. Yeah. I'm yeah. learning so much on this conversation. Same, same thing with women too, though. The more that you can get present to the sensations and your own arousal as it builds, mm-hmm. then the more connected you can be, and the more you can control what happens. So you can, um, uh, you know, orgasm may not happen because you're so clen- so tight and clenching in your pelvic floor, but you don't even realize it because you're not connected there. Uh, or maybe because of the tension, it's caused some sense, uh, some uh, less sensitivity there. And so it is through mindful self-pleasuring practices or working with a pelvic floor specialist who can help you connect with awareness mm-hmm. and noticing what's going on there so that you can be more in tune with it moving forward. Mm. So um, pieces like that, but then also looking at the, how we define sex. You know, in our porn, um, even in the medical model, it was very has been very male-dominant based. It's like... Um, genital focus, you know, fast, thrusting, you know, orgasm, mm-hmm. and then refractory period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she wants to do it again, and you're too tired, you're going to yeah. go to sleep because of the release of all those hormones. Um, and 
if we instead expand the definition of sex, that it doesn't have to look like this, that it can be outer course with no penetration, that it can be, that it includes everything from kissing to touching, heavy petting to, to everything. Then we can take the pressure off of our body having to perform a certain way. Right. And it actually relieves a lot of the anxiety that can come up as we're approaching the uh, sexual experience. Interesting. Yeah. If you look at it from a holistic standpoint, then your relationship with sex can be more fruitful because it's not just the penetration. Right. It's literally right. everything leading, in, including the foreplay. Yeah. As a whole. Interesting. Yeah. And even I've talked with men about in Tantra, we talk that about um, how you, there's a lot that you can do with a soft penis. And so when I introduce that to my male clients, that there's, there's a lot of things that you can play with without having to have an erection, then it opens their eyes of like, oh, okay, I only thought it was this, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm not broken. There's not something wrong with me. I have to, I don't have to fit in just this, this, you know, narrow um, image of what sex is, but there's a lot more you can do. Yeah. And, and it can be even more powerful, actually more orgasmic and full body orgasms that you don't even know is in your frame of consciousness because we've just been fed this image. Yeah. So, and you mentioned porn, I was going to get right to it. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy you did. Is it benefiting, hurting, or somewhere in the middle, our society and our relationship with sex? Yeah. Somewhere in the middle. So there isn't anything wrong inherently with porn, but we have to understand that it is a form of entertainment not a form of education. And if we treat it as entertainment and we still understand, so I think really it's around the miseducation uh, around it. You know, you and I growing up, this was, we, we may have looked at that to understand what sex was. I wasn't taught about pleasurable sex in school. I was taught about the anatomy. That's it. That's it. No, that's <laughs> right. sex ed sucked. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, becoming teens and early adults, it's like, well, how do I do it? That's fun. You know, how do I do it? That's pleasurable. And then we look to videos or magazines to what it's supposed to look like. And so that gets into input into our brain and programs the image of what it's supposed to look like, mm. which again is this image of fast, hot, thrusting, male-oriented. There isn't foreplay. <laughs> There's none of that. And so it's not accurate form of sex. It also, what it can also do is cause us to be so focused on what's going on out here that we're not focused with our body. And it can develop this, this pattern of masturbation, if you're doing this in masturbation, that may not translate to partnered sex. Mm. So the way that you hold yourself or the way that you breathe or don't breathe and all impacts, like, so you are programming your body to orgasm this way. And then say so you bring in another person who does not feel like your hand. This is the same thing with women and, and vibrators. There's nothing wrong with vibrators. But if that becomes your sole way of reaching an orgasm, it's going to be a lot more difficult to bring in a partner and have partnered uh, orgasm in partner sex. So we've got to think about um, expanding our practices, our self-pleasure practices, to be beyond what we traditionally go to. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. So trying different positions, trying different hands, uh, hand movements, um, 
different types of toys, breathing in your body, staying focused, um, even taking the goal of orgasm completely off the table mm. and just being connected with yourself, just feeling and having a good that. time. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Getting in touch with your body. Exactly. Yeah. Being in your body because so many of us are cerebral and the, and literally the stimulus of watching porn is cerebral. You're watching it cerebrally, right? Mm -hmm. You're not in your body. No. Uh, so I love that you are submitting to all of us to create variety. Yeah. In, in those practices, yeah. practice, right? And then and then get more in your body so you know how you feel with pleasure, arousal, ejaculation, everything in between. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I really love that. Um, so so what, what is something right now for you that is really important for people to know that we may have not covered? Because I, we, you know, you threw some gems. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you came with the gems. <laughs> but... Um, what, what's something, is there anything that's really itching for you to, for us to learn or that we need to start addressing with each other or ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So this idea of high sex drive and low sex drive, and because a lot of times couples come to me and they're like, we have two different sex drives and we just can't match each other. Well, if we look at sexual arousal instead of high and low, but we look at it as a system that operates like a vehicle of a car, it is, um, influenced by contextual factors. And in a car, there's a system of brake and accelerators. So there's a lot of contextual factors that will put on the brakes, mm -hmm. and there will be contextual factors that put on the accelerators. If you put on the accelerator, and there are a lot of brakes already in place, the accelerator is not going to work. It's like having the emergency brake on your car, and you're trying to yeah. drive forward, and it's just like uh, uh, clunky. So to first identify what these pieces are that might be in place, can help to create more compassion and then also empower ourselves to be able to mitigate the the breaks that might be in place. So these breaks can be everything from stress to body image to things in the environment. You know, if I feel like my my uh, roommate's going to hear me, then I'm probably not going to be able to yeah. yeah open up for it. Or some people need to feel clean. So perhaps it's a, something about themselves or maybe it's something about their partner, something about the relationship status, you know, mm. all of these pieces that can cause us to contract and not feel like we can be open to sexual energy are getting turned on. Mm -hmm. So it's not really necessary. You just go, oh, I have low sex drive, but yeah. you really got to look at all those breaks. Yes. And you, yes. Me you mentioned one body image. Are yeah. you a proponent of people masturbating in front of the mirror? Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for that question. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think it's really, really powerful because you are connecting with yourself and a lot can come up from that. Mm. So if you're self-pleasuring in front of the mirror and you're noticing that your mind doesn't want to stay focused on the pleasure and it's, it's all these other things, then you can help train yourself. Um, it may be too much to start right away. <laughs> you know, perhaps we do some of this other work around our um, sexuality and learning about who we are first, um, or maybe even addressing some of these body image challenges first. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even starting with, with, looking ourselves in the eye in the mirror without masturbation and taking this in steps, mm -hmm. you know, maybe dancing in front of the mirror first, getting really good at these other pieces first. Cause that's going to be intense. It's <laughs> going to be intense. And yeah. I always, this is what I tell people. I was like, work on looking and do mirror work. Like just yeah. look at yourself. I used to sit Indian style a few years ago and just talk to myself in the mirror. Oh my God. Like, and, I, and it was weird because <laughs> the first time I did it, I was like kind of like looking down and like not wanting to, yeah. 
And it's weird when you talk to yourself and, you know, you're giving yourself some love mm-hmm. and, you know, verbally. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I had, I had a friend, she's like, I hated dancing in front of the mirror. I hated mm-hmm. dancing. Like, I just felt so goofy dancing. But yeah. now she's like putting up Instagram videos of her dancing in front of the mirror. You know, it's oh, amazing yeah. how we can make that progress. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you do a few things before you get to that point. But anyway, yeah. you have a podcast. I do. What's I the name two. of it? You have two. I have two. Yeah. What are the names? Eat, Play, Sex. And it's all about sex, love, and nutrition. So I bring on guests and, and even my own talking about these topics. Mm-hmm. And then Erotically Wasted, which is a five minutes of erotic poetry that is designed to be a source for us to nourish our eroticism. Whoa. Yeah. Because eroticism isn't just something that we can just like pull out of our ass. It's something that we have to nourish. So we have to set up our environment or set up things to where we allow our minds and our bodies to go there. So that it's not something that we just have to, you know, we enter into the bedroom and we're like, okay, all of a sudden turn, turn it on, on my, my eroticism. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you nourish it so you yeah. know how to access it and just right. express it as, as, as your truth, as your yeah. authenticity. Yeah. I, I, lo- I love that. And what was your Instagram? Sex Love Yoga. I don't, how did you get that handle? Is it, you just got it. I just got it. Yeah, yeah. I combined, you know, I was, it just came to me. Ama- <laughs> divine intervention i don't know amazing but it it's just perfect. happened to be open yeah. your favorite things and yeah. what about uh you have website or anything yep sexloveyoga.com okay is there anything else i'm missing <laughs> i think that's everything okay, yeah yeah perfect. they can find everything through those avenues okay we want you back because this is a great conversation and i have a lot more questions that i wanted to ask but we got to do this again yeah i'm in thank you What an awesome conversation with Dr. Katmeyer. Uh, so much that we can learn about ourselves so we can show up in our partnerships, our relationships, our marriages, uh, more authentically us, and we can be mirrored and holding spaces for each other to really have a fruitful relationship. I love that conversation, um, but it really all starts with yourself. So get in touch with yourself. Get in touch with your sexuality. I really hope you love this show. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and supporting. I love you all as always, and see you next week.